You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Where are you coming to us from today, Matt? I'm in Northern California. Ah. How Northern. Uh, not super northern. There's a lot north. Uh, same latitude as San Francisco, but inland toward Yosemite. Oh, you're not you're not running uh, trails and mountains out that way, are you? No, I mean we're we're in the valley. We're in the eastern edge of the valley here, so it's it's really farmy uh, farm country here. But if you go any further east, then you get into the Sierra foothills. This is interesting. I oftentimes will call a friend or a client and they'll say, it's strange. I was just listening to you in my ear and now we're talking, but I have several of your audio book where uh-huh. you dictated the book. And it's interesting to hear your voice as a voice that I've heard many times, but someone right. that I've not personally met to be on the other yes. end. Yeah. So it's like a one, one-sided friendship, Bracken. Right. He's, I know. he's your friend, but you're not his friend. How do you feel about that? You've got me at a disadvantage. We go back a ways that you're unaware of. <laughs> <laughs> Creepy. So have you been in so have you been in Northern California? Is that where you've resided for a long time? I guess I don't know yeah. Well, yeah, I moved out here. I moved to California in 1995. Um fell in love with and married a California girl and so I'm a lifer here now. Mm. I've I've had some stints in San Diego. Actually three separate times I've lived there, but uh just um, yeah, b- bouncing around California mostly. Okay. Excellent. And when did you write your first book? When was your first publication in relation to that? Uh, the, my first book came out in 2003. Okay. Did that check out Bracken? I mean, we weren't friends yet, but we were, <laughs> we weren't too far off. No, 2003. I mean, that was, I feel like we're starting to date ourselves. I was still in high school, actually, in 2003. So I was I was nowhere close to buying a running book yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, I would still show up to practice in, in basketball shoes and basketball shorts and uh, all out every step of the way. Those those were the times. Yeah. Your book would have come here. One of your books would have come in very handy back in the day. That's for sure. Went to Should be like a prerequisite yeah. for all new runners. But you're actually not allowed to run a step until you read at least this one book. Right. Or at least high school coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though it took me a little while to find my stride, so to speak. I, mm-hmm. my, my, most of my first, most of my early books, I would be delighted if they just vanished without a trace. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm curious. Well, I'm, I'm interested to hear this too, because there are certain authors. I don't even know if you identify as author, but certain coaches who write books and they constantly put out new iterations of the book. And mm-hmm. half of it seems to drive sales. And the other half is because you look back on what you were doing 10 years ago and you think I'd really like to update that, but I haven't seen that often out of you. Is that, is that a conscious decision or it's just like a time thing? Um, it's just m- mostly has to do with the way I'm wired creatively. Um, okay. You know, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm always on to the next thing. It, I actually have, I really have trouble like staying focused through that last step to the finish line, because by the time like I've got a book that's you know pretty well dialed in and ready to go, I've already I'm thinking more about the next project, and and sometimes I get a little bit ahead of myself. So it just makes me 
uh, I've always got so many ideas, like books I haven't written yet that I want to write that it, it, like, I just can't muster the motivation to go okay. back to something I've, I've done. This is typically a later, like once we really roll into things question, but I, I'm, I'm going to get into a heavier question right now, which is what do you actually regret that you've put out there? Because I, I've, I have people who have messaged and said, Hey, I followed this plan you wrote for me in 2011. And I look at it, I go back in Google drive and find it under like decades of work and realize, Oh, that was crap. I'm really sorry. Can I give you something new? Because that's terrible. Do you actually regret anything, or is it just kind of like ah, those were formative years? Um, no, I, I would say I I regret things. Um, <laughs> I mean, early on, it, there was one point where I came across a quote from Albert Einstein, and this is not one of the many many apocryphal Einstein quotes. It's what, something he actually said, um, yeah. and I actually can only paraphrase it, but it had something to do with like. You should that people should strive to one should strive to be um, of value, a man of value, not a man of success. Um, and I felt so convicted by that statement because like I, I that I, I was sort of caught, you know, in that Faustian bargain. Like, do I want to offer something to the world or do I want to be a success? And I really for a long time, I wanted both. And so. Mm -hmm. There were there were things I did mostly for the sake of success, and those are the things. And, and there was there was not a lot of value. Um, mm. uh, so those are those are the missteps I would like to have back. I mean that that is kind of the catch twenty two of success, though. That in order to become someone who can provide value, you have to pay your way up until that point. Like we all look back and have that. We'd love to give it away from the start, but at some point, you're a broke young person who needs to. <laughs> and hopefully, yes. you know, hopefully you get to look back and say, I didn't compromise too greatly and I did provide something of value. But yeah, I think we all have that thing. We look back and say that was simply some duct tape to get me through to the point where I could really provide something of value. Yeah, though, you know, I, I tend to, you know, in, in races, when I finish a race, I'm never thinking about the people who finished behind me. I'm I'm only thinking about the people who finished ahead of me. And it's the same <laughs> thing. It's the same thing, like as a coach, as a writer. And so I think there are, there might not be many, but there are examples of people who just never sold out at all, you know, to any degree. And like, I look at those examples and think, you know, what's my excuse? That we're aware of, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, oh, come on. Uh, I, I just don't believe it. I don't, I, I don't, that, that one of my least favorite, least favorite expressions is everyone has their price. I just don't believe that. I, I think there are people who have absolute integrity and that they have, they will not sell out. There might not be many, but I think those people do exist. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of the standard I strived to hold myself to. I agree with that. But I also believe that integrity is a sliding scale. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet we could find something on, um, you know, people who wouldn't sell it for a price would probably have one thing that they could like in confidence tell you, but you're right. There are those exceptions <laughs> to, I mean, it's the bell curve of life. There are the people at the top who managed to not screw up the way we all did. Yeah. This um makes me curious, actually, as you guys are talking about this, um, were you, uh, as far as your origin story, I sort of know it, but I don't know it completely. Did you uh, consider yourself a runner and then became an, a writer or did you fancy yourself a writer who also ran? Um, which one came first for you? 
writing came first. Um, okay, it did. But but I got both from my father. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm so much like him. It's creepy, you know. Like you, you know that weird thing. Like if you if you're like one of your parents, like you start to notice it. Like right around the time you stop growing, it's like. Mm -hmm. like you catch yourself in the mirror and you're like oh shit or like like you see video of yourself walking and you're like that's how my dad walks <laughs> um so yeah i'm just like him in many ways but it, it manifested quite early so my dad um is a, a writer more of like a, a novelist fiction guy um and he had published novels by the time i was you know a, a small kid so i was just aware that that was a thing and and so you know everyone has to write in school and i discovered that i liked it um and so i think i was nine years old when i decided that i wanted to be a writer when i grew up and i never changed my mind at, at any point um and then and then my dad ran his first marathon when i was 11 and the next day i went out and ran six miles and and so yeah the, they came close you know, the one followed closely upon the heels of the other, but uh, writing did come first. Uh, okay. And then I guess hereditarily, what uh, what seems to be passed on more accurately, runability or writability, Matt? Which which one did you get the best of? You know, it, funny enough, you know, my dad, um, he wasn't terribly fast. Uh, you know, like I, I, I thought of them as like this big, plodding, slow guy. I guess, you know, by today's standards, he was actually you know, above average. Um, I think he had like a 39 minute 10 K. Um, I think his best marathon, you know, he just never trained that hard for them, but like, I think his best marathon was three forty ish. Um, so, so I was a lot faster than that. And, and actually, so I have two brothers and we all got into running and, and we're all, pretty good at it actually um so and my mom you know she tried running once and her knees hurt uh she's got wide hips and she's like so i, I don't think i got it for, from from either of them they must have skipped the generation you know maybe there, <laughs> there, there's a, a grandparent who never ran who would have been good at it if if only they had <laughs> okay bracken something you don't know about me and of course matt you don't know anything about me although bracken knows everything about you apparently we, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I actually fancied myself a writer and thought I was pretty good at it growing up. I took the language route and uh, written words made sense to me and my compositions would be used as examples and my poems would be the one hung on the hallways and I was like are very articulate on paper. So I'd always wondered about being a writer. Um, never did anything with it. I went the exercise physiology route and obviously now I host this podcast and I'm a coach, but um I glamorize or glamorize that like that life that I don't know something about hunkering down and putting your brain onto paper and making it digestible yet poetic and like all that th those things like like how would you describe and this is a personal curiosity I know it's a running podcast but like how would you describe your relationship with writing like what what does that look like for you and I mean it might be a weird question but I'm curious yeah you know writing is one of those um things that can seep into your blood. I, I don't know if it's like, if anyone's like, I mean, I suppose there's someone who was, you know, who might've been born to write, but never got the opportunity. Um, but, you know, if you start as, as young as I did and have been doing it as long as I have, um, like the thought of letting it go is, it, I mean, it's unthinkable, like not writing. It, it's like the absolute last thing I would be willing 
to, to give up other than my wife. <laughs> is it, well, is it like you're, is writing the equivalent of like your morning coffee? Like it's that infused in your daily habits or is it a, a weekend thing as we say? Like, I'm curious in that regard. Yeah. You know, if I go more than a day without writing um, there, I mean, I, I feel I go through withdrawals. Like, in fact, mm. I can't remember the last time I went two days <laughs> without, without writing. Um, it's just, it's an absolute need and it's a lot of different levels. I mean, it's, it's a huge part of my identity. Um, it gives me, you know, a sense of purpose. I just don't feel like, um, I just, I feel like I'm, I'm wasting my time if I'm not writing with, you know, you know, daily regularity. Um, and it's just, um, you know, I, I remember at, toward the end of high school, my older brother, Josh, uh, nicknamed me project Matt. Um, because like, I'm always on this, I, I've always been on this quest. I, I love that. It's a big reason I, I, I love endurance sports too, is, um, the, the, the feeling of being on the ascent, like I'm going to be better tomorrow than I am today. Like I, I just live for that feeling. It, it just scratches an itch and, and writing does that for me even better than athletics really, because, you know, my dad is 78 now and he's writing as well as, or better than ever. Um, and, and, you know, you can't really do that with, with running. Um, well, you know, I shouldn't put a ceiling on myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, we have a local, we had a local rapper here named Project Pat, and I always uh -huh. assumed it referred to his neighborhood, but he may have been an aspiring novelist <laughs> this whole time, but we didn't realize it. <laughs> the way you describe uh, your passion for writing is kind of how I would describe mine for reading, where if mm -hmm. I go more than a day without sitting down with something, it feels weird. And I've kind of like, I, I like identifying why people are good at things. And I feel that there are three main types of talented writers. The first is like the classic person who can make words do anything they want, like a Cormac McCarthy, who yeah. when you read a line that might be 800 words long for one sentence, every word has been crafted. It looks like over the course of two years for one sentence. Yes. They can make you see anything they want. Then you have like a Stephen King who can make you feel something. Even if it's not like a crazy great novel, you feel whatever he wants. And then I would put you in that third column of people that can speak to both ends of the spectrum who can almost write colloquially where like conversationally, where I can write about heady conversation and scientific ideals, or I can write about emotions or write about the feel or tell a story, but it's all written in a way that people at a high level of understanding will not be bored by it. And they'll take something from it. And people with no baseline understanding will walk away understanding what you're trying to impart. And so like, I feel like you're my example of someone who can write to all levels at once without really turning away either end of the spectrum. And my, I, I've wondered every time I listen to one of your books or read one of your books, I think, is this innately, you can just write how someone can explain, like you can write in a teaching style, or is this like you sit there, like I imagine Cormac doing like <laughs> pouring over word after word after word, trying to put it into everyday language, but with a high level knowledge. Yeah. I mean, you know, the way I look at the craft of writing is that um, it's actually one of the ways it's different from endurance sports um, in a good way is that, you know, in in a running race, there's first place, second place, third place. I mean, it like ranking is ruthless in in, in running. Right. Like if you didn't win, you lost. Um, 
But writing isn't like that. You can't just rank. I mean, people try, but I think it's a fool's errand. Like, right. you know, so-and-so is the best writer and so-and-so is the second best writer. It's like, what? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there, there's a million different ways to be a good writer. And and what what your mission as an individual writer should be is to find, is to become the writer that only you can be. Um, and that's that's the way I've I've always looked at myself. Like, I think... You know, so it's almost like a striving for absolute authenticity, um, you know, just, you know, chipping away at the rock that surrounds the statue and, and finding the statue, which mm -hmm. is like, you know, the best writer I can be somewhere in there. And maybe you never quite get there, but you're you're moving toward it. So I feel like it's like this journey of, of writing more and more like me. <laughs> um, OK. Yeah. So it's intentional, but it's also pulling out the best of what you can naturally do. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's a matter of like not trying to copy other writers mm. or, or or be like them. You know, I I read voraciously like you, and I absorb good writing, but I I don't. I try not to think about it. I just let it go into the soup and add flavor, <laughs> right? As it as it will. Um, but it's funny, you know, because you know, you know, I, I always did my own creative writing on the side outside of school. But you know, a lot. I was an English major in college, so I did a lot of writing in school, and I went down that whole rabbit hole of academic writing. And and so after I graduated from college and started writing for Endurance Sports Magazine, I actually had to unlearn a lot of that. Just like, you know, there's this whole jargon and you know a lot of passive voice and a lot of unnecessary words and just like, you know, showing off. And, and so it, it, it's been a process actually. Um, uh, yeah, to just write, I guess, more colloquially. And sorry, I I don't want to use that term. Because that that does can have a negative connotation, and I don't mean it as as such. Like it's not colloquial language, but it's conversational in its appearance. Yeah, let me show off my vocabulary here and give you the the word that's actually perfect. It's demotic. Okay, not demonic, demotic. <laughs> uh, and so that it's sort of like you know, it's um, yes, yeah, it's, it's you know, it, it means colloquial, but it, with a a nuance, a shade of meaning that's uh, that's slightly different, but um. So yeah, my my dad told me early on like, um, and it's something he always hated in in, in other people's writing. He, you know, he, he said writers need to be empathetic. Like you're not trying to show off; you're trying to achieve something in the mind of the reader. You're like getting back to your thought, like make someone feel something, make someone understand something. You know, whatever it is, and just like you should just be on this laser focus mission. It's like, you should understand your mission. Like, what am I trying to do with this piece of writing? Um, and just, you know, make every effort, you know, to get the job done, um, mm -hmm. you know, to make sure the reader walks away with exactly what you want them to walk away with. Who is that ultra runner? Was that Caballo Blanco? Was that the guy way down in, in South America who died out in the desert? Was that him? Yep. His quote of when, I think it, it might be misattributed to him, but in an ultra marathon or in trail running, when you have the choice between taking one step and two steps, take three. Uh -huh. That seems mm -hmm. to be the style that many authors take. Like if you yeah. can say it in one word or two, use three or four. Right. And I like that you use the words that are needed. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think everyone, everyone who, who discovers a passion for writing and commits to the craft maybe not everyone, but most, they go through a phase when it's like, it, 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 you, you have to do it, like that show-off phase where you're just sort of like, 
testing your limits and just, you know, seeing what you can do. I think, you know, it's part of the process, but it's one of the advantages of starting young is that you get through that before, before you're actually publishing. <laughs> so, so no, mm. so no one sees it. <laughs> yeah. So, so bringing like writing and running together, would you say that they are more um, like synonymous for you or separate? Like if I were, if my sole mission was to get knowledge and writing out to the world, like I would have to have a pen and paper with me on every single damn run because somehow your brain sorts through magic when you don't even intend it to out there. Right. So like how synonymous or how separate are they for you? Um, I mean, they're, they're pretty well tied together, you know, um, you know, my whole approach to writing looks a lot like my approach to endurance training. Like, I think a lot of writers are procrastinators. Like they wait and wait and wait and cram. Like I've never been that way at all. I remember even back in, you know, in, in high school, like if on the first day of an English class, class, the teacher said, you know, 50% of your grade is going to be, you know, your final term paper. I would start working on my final term paper that night. <laughs> I was the same exact way and got made fun of for it all of my educational career. Yeah. yeah. And I, I never once, and maybe you can say the same, never once pulled an all-nighter, not even close, because I never had to. I pulled a two-hour or at most. I never, right. my, my <laughs> motto was like 60 to 90 minutes every night. And yes. when the test comes, I might not even have to study beforehand or write beforehand because right. it was already done. Not you, Bracken, you're smirking like, <laughs> I can't understand that at all. I mean, I embody the classic procrastinator. I don't know if I started a final before... I don't know, a 24 hour clock down to, to due date. It's not something I'm proud of. And it <laughs> probably is, I don't know, probably speaks to a lot of the the issues I've had over the last three years coming back from injuries, which is well, rehab rather than prehab, right? Well, it could, could lead you to performing well under pressure, racing great when it counts, right? And it would correlate somehow. Could we twist it that way? I don't think it's a positive ever. Okay, trying for you. So, so Matt, you know kind of what you're doing here. I, I emailed you very briefly what we wanted to do today. Um, Bracken and I started this coaches series where we're sort of diving into philosophy. I have a bunch of questions I'd like to ask you. Typically, we do a very conversational style podcast, much like we've been doing. And we'll continue that for a little bit. But then I got some, you know, philosophy questions. And we have some specifics because if there's like a great, a great brain for all of this and somebody who people look up to, I mean, Bracken, how often have we referred to one of Matt's books? If it's not every other episode in our 200 some so far, isn't it at minimum? Yeah. Yeah. We we generally say if if you're new to running, start by reading 8020. Mm-hmm. And that after that, you can go explore whatever you want. But it's like this is the framework for how to approach being a runner. If you can master the idea of mm-hmm. not doing anything else, but just stick to not even 80-20, but just hard days, hardish, easy days, easy. Anywhere on that spectrum, you're you're going to be just fine in life. So we, we, we do refer to you a lot because again, of all the books I've read, yours just made the most sense that every runner and young running coach should read it. Whereas some of the other books out there are, they're finishers. You know, once you've read everything else, maybe try tweaking with this, but but so we reference you a ton. We've had a bunch of coaches on here. We're going to have a high volume coach, a low volume, uh, 
uh, all quality versus, you know, the Norwegian approach, people who are trying their own training system, people who are strength-based runner, you know, every philosophy of training. But you're kind of the person who's made a career over not making a philosophy. Like you have your philosophy, but you're not trying to reinvent or come up with sexy new workouts. You're just seem to be trying to get people to follow the tried and true principles of how the body recovers and responds. And it made sense at some point to have the person on here who has kind of been the guiding light for how we like to keep people uninjured and progressing. Right on. Well, I feel like I belong here. So hopefully <laughs> I've had it. You are amongst people. Well, well, first, yeah, we're going to have at it. Don't you worry, Matt. But, um, but first, like, I think like we, we've sung your praises as a writer for sure. And referred to purchase your books, of course, especially, you know, probably your three best selling. Um, although I'm super curious in your email subtitle, the comeback quotient was one of yours. That was, I haven't read yet, but oh, Bracken's going to grab it. I bet. Are you going to kiss his butt? I knew it. Um, but, but, but anyways, I saw that was one of your features as well as 80, 20 running in your, in your subheading. But point being is, so we sung your praises as a writer and, if you'd listen back, you'd trust me there. But what we don't really know much before we get into like asking you some specific questions about all these things is like your development as a, as a runner um, and sort of your, your journey there. And I thought Bracken, I'm sure you're curious too, like the foundation of everything you're teaching people had to be begin with some self-evaluation. Right. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious how that all like your journey there and how that begun began. Yes. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I've, I've, I've just co-authored a book with uh, Ben Rosario, the coach of the NAZ elite professional team. Um, and it's called run like a pro, even if you're slow. <laughs> and, uh, and I sort of go through, I, I answer that very question there. I think the advantage I had was, um, you know, when I, I started running at age 11, I, you know, I ran in high school and, and and the, the it so happened that the coach of the girls cross country team at that time. So obviously I was on the boys team, so he wasn't my coach, but he was none other than Jeff Johnson, uh, the guy who named Nike Nike, the you know the first employee of Nike. Who you know he sold all his stock at one point and just decided to uh, live in New Hampshire and and coach at the high school level. And this guy, you know, he he used to rub elbows with. Steve Prefontaine and, um, you know, the, the whole Nike crowd, the university of, or he ran at the university of Oregon. And so like, I just like, this guy was a wealth of knowledge and not just knowledge, but like, you know, he had a pedigree, like he knew the right way, you know, cause not all that much is changed really, honestly. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, and I became, I was kind of a geek. So I was reading, you know, books that he would recommend, um, at, at that age. So I think I just, you know, honestly, like, you know, my philosophy has evolved. I mean, I've learned a lot and some things have changed, but I really haven't like, you know, had to apotheosize. Um, no, I haven't had, I haven't had to become an apostate of bad knowledge that I gained, um, uh, you know, er early on. And, uh, so yeah, I ran high school. I wasn't super talented. Um, but you know, I, I was on a couple of state championship winning, uh, cross country teams in high school, actually burned out, quit, didn't run in college. Um, and only picked it back up again in in my late twenties. And I, I just had this like sense of like wanting to make up for lost time. Um, and, 
I discovered I was very injury prone in high school. I never got injured. You know, I guess you're made of rubber in high school. Um, so in injuries always sort of like, I just, I had, you know, three different injuries that were multi-year uh, that kept me out of competition for like up to three and a half years. <laughs> and so I, I lost a lot of my, I had this like monkey on my back and this like unfinished business, like haunting me. And I felt like, like, I, I'm just not able to stay healthy long enough to, to be the runner I thought I was on the trajectory to be in high school. Um, and if I, but it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise and I'm, it makes me glad I'm a coach and a writer too, because like every disappointment I had as a runner, at least I could use somehow it would teach me things. And, and, and I didn't give up and I was just, I refused to give up. Um, and, and so I ended up kind of discovering some things that I think uh, are helpful for me to know. You know, I set my marathon PR at age 46. Um, and it was, I think my 50th marathon ish. Uh, and that, that, that just doesn't happen, you know? Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's a weird, I don't, I, I don't know any other runner who has quite the same, uh, what was your phrase? Uh, development, uh, story to tell, but, um, yeah, that's kind of it. I find that interesting that, uh, a writer in which uh, their life would, you know, presumably embody running inside and out. Somebody who dedicates now their life's work to writing about running just gave it up for a while in college. <laughs> like even the the uh, uh, the apex of what we, you know from the outside looking in as a runner and a writer was like, "F it, I'm over it. I don't <laughs> want to do it right now." And I, I don't know. There's like some really like humanizing there because how often do Bracken do our athletes go through that phase? Or, you know, and they, they feel bad and they, they beat themselves up and I just can't get myself out the door. I don't want or I'm burnt out. They think it's like a personal flaw, uh, character flaw. But yet here's Matt Fitzgerald, one of, if not the best endurance uh, writer out there at current time saying, eh, I don't want to run either. I just find that very, like, relatable. That's all. I just want to say that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm glad for that. You know, I was like, I considered myself a classic head case. I know there are coaches who just hate that term, but I'm, I, I apply it to myself. You know, it's a real just, thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could not, I could not tolerate the pain of racing. It was just too much. It wasn't even like performance anxiety. Um, it, it was just like I don't want to hurt that much. I, I just wasn't mature enough for it, and. Um, yeah, that that's a bit that was a big motivator for me when I when I got back into it is like I, I just I wanted to use running as a vehicle to change how I viewed myself as a man, um, and really performance was kind of secondary to that. We talk uh, from time to time about how to be cautious of how you choose your coach. We like to give people a, a bit of a skill set to to sift through the nonsense with the. The, the, the good coaches out there. And one of the things we caution against is choosing someone who's just an all world runner, just because they're an all world runner. And I think part of that like is you have to have struggled to understand when an athlete struggles, but part of loving running is struggling with running. And I think it's almost healthier long-term if someone leaves running at some point, like you have to miss it. <laughs> to understand how truly beneficial it was to you. If you never leave it, I think you take for granted the routine and the routine covers up the passion piece. And it's almost reassuring to know that, yeah, you did go through it, that dis disjointed, you know, that the leaving and going to do something else and realizing, nope, no, nope, that's, that's probably my center. 
Yeah, it's funny because, you know, when, when, when I, whenever I'm asked, like, what's your biggest regret? It is quitting, um, you know, that, you know, a, you know, part of me can't help, but because um, quite honestly, I felt like I never actually did achieve the level of performance I would have if I hadn't quit. But then, you know, when I say that, you know, astute people will say, yeah, but like you wouldn't have had the journey that right. you've had, you know, in your you know, I'm 50 now, you know, you know, late twenties, thirties, forties. And it's so true. It, it is so true. Like I, like, I mean, the fire burned hot in, in me, you know, all, all that time. And, and I looked at, you know, some of my peers who, who didn't quit, who kept right on running and they were over it around the time they turned 40 or, or, or right. you know, it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, enough already. <laughs> yeah. You, you missed out on college running. But you also missed out on the post-college right. burnout, never come back to run again. Right. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> I'm curious about your lost years. I'm curious about everyone's lost years. Kind of like you said, I don't believe that you know everyone has a price. Well, I do believe everyone has lost years. <laughs> Some are more dramatic than other people's. Some people's are very subtle, but everyone has their years where they disappear from what they were doing and what they ended up doing. And there's that you know, that some, for some people it's going off to college, for some people it's right after college, for some people it's a midlife crisis. But if you were already a writer and you're known for writing about running in the headspace of running right now, what were you doing when you stopped running, but you entered your professional writing? Was that, was that a a drastic transition? Did you already know you wanted to write about running or was that rediscovered when you started running again? No, I, I knew I wanted to write professionally uh, and I didn't, I mean, quite honestly, like I grew up writing poetry, Okay, <laughs> but you know, I knew, in, in fact, uh, fun fact, I mean, technically my first book is a book, a collection of poems. <laughs> really? Yeah. Is it, is it easily searchable? Is this something we can find or is this one of those regrets? Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually both. It's actually both. Uh, poetry is really difficult to look back on with fondness decades later. (laughs) Yeah, though, I, I will say, I mean, quite, I mean, uh, frankly, I think it it actually, if you could make money off, off of it, I would be doing it now. Uh, because it it just came so naturally to me. It, 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 you know, yeah, I said before, there's a million different ways to be a writer. It was clear for me to me from early on that I wasn't going to be the type of writer my dad was like he, he could make up stories. I couldn't make up stories. But, uh, you know, yeah, when I was nine, that's what I did. You know, I wrote a poem a day, practically like I, I was obsessed. I, I created a whole little booklet of them and sold them door to door in my neighborhood trying to raise money to buy a Lego set. I coveted. <laughs> that's kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was into it. And, and I also I mean, when you think. I mean, you hear when you hear the word poetry, like you probably think I was writing Hallmark cards or, or whatever, but I was actually a satirist. So I actually went for laughs and it was like it was like dark, dark, dark humor. <laughs> um, An 11 year old satirist. I like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's what I wrote. So the, the title of that that book of poems is it's actually shame about the title. Um, so it's a self-referential title. What is your youngest aged poem in there? Like what, like at what age would be your youngest or newest or oldest, however you want to look at it, poem? Like, is there an 11 year old poem in this book? No, no, no. Cause I was 20, I was 23 when I, I put that out and they were all newish. Uh, 
yeah. So it wasn't uh, juvenilia as they as they call it. It was. Can you imagine like a twenty three year old poet? Like when I was twenty three, it was like emo was the music people be playing. Imagine like a twenty three year old emo poem book. I just cringe at the thought of what I would have come up with. There'd be some <laughs> angst in there. <laughs> just just looking back, I mean, at twenty three, vastly different than fifty right now. I'm sure you look back and chuckle a little bit. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, there's some good stuff there. <laughs> I, I remember I, I went to a, uh, I went to a, um, a coaches, like a, like a coaches summit or whatever for, for running coaches that there was a whole series of them. I used to go to a lot of them. They, they had like, they had Joe V Hill there, like, you know, you know, big, big name people. And we, we got to know each other, the coaches who, who, co- who were invited to speak at a lot of them we would look forward to meeting up in whatever city and, and doing our thing and then go out, going out drinking afterwards. And we were going out drinking, uh, after, you know, we'd all given our talks. Um, and someone had found my book (laughs) and, and read one of the most sophomoric scatological poems in that collection aloud to the table. And yeah, I just turned purple uh, but fortunately, I was drunk, so I got through. <laughs> did karaoke night turn into spoken word real quickly? Pretty much, yeah. That's so. Is that how you wooed your wife? Then were you were you writing sonnets to her, or was this a classic romance? I did write music for her or lyrics. Yeah. Um, so she sings. She's a singer. Um, and we we'd only been dating a short time um, when I, I actually I got together with some buddies who were musicians. I, I'm not a musician, but I, I wrote. I wrote a song and we all got together and we recorded it and I, and then I played it for her. So pretty close actually. You know, each, each coach or good mind we have on generally exposes something in me or in us. And you walk away feeling like I'm, I'm a little inadequate in that area and I have some research to do. This is not the direction I saw being exposed in (laughs) realizing that I've never written a song for a woman. (laughs) <laughs> much less recorded it. I've done both as well. They were very bad. You've never done this, Bracken? No. You didn't like learn Howie Day's Collide on the guitar and like sing it to somebody like it was from uh, you to her via your souls. Never, Bracken? I am just a toddler in this room of, of titans. Wow. I have an, I have an entire high eight roll from back when that was our only technology of me in my bedroom singing songs, probably that I sent in regret now to people. It's embarrassing. When you talk about tangents, this is up there with ours. This is, what was the question? Lost years? (laughs) Yes. Lost years. years. Okay. (laughs) Did you, uh, so did you write poetry and try to monetize i mean i I assume you self-published your first one and did you write did you do the odd magazine and newspaper to to pass time until you got your first break um yeah so i you know i I was always you know writing poetry on in kind of uh, moon moonlighting or stolen moments or what what have you um so i I went to a, a little a tiny liberal arts college in the philadelphia area and that had an alumni magazine. So I got a job um, writing for my college's alumni magazine while I was still a student. Um, and then after I graduated, um, 
the editor left and I just slid into his position. So that was like my first po post-college writing job. And I liked the magazine thing. I mean, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to still be writing for a college alumni magazine at 50, but it was like, a, it was a good start, you know? And then um, I, I, I was never really a fan of Philadelphia. And so I would complain about it and, and, you know, college friends who were from California said, you know, I see a fit. You should, you should just go there. And I'm like, fuck it, I'll go there. Um, and so I was 24, 1995, moved to San Francisco, having never set foot in the city before. Um, and so I just wanted to, I thought, well, this is, uh, I remember, I remember reading Kerouac's on the road during the road trip across country. I'm like, yes, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna show up and make it. Um, and I was just gonna take the first good writing job I could get. And I remember one of the jobs I my girlfriend at the time talked me out of applying for it. It was at High Times magazine. Uh, and I was actually smoking a ton of pot at the time. I was not running. And, and I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. It was a good fit. She's like, yeah, exactly. She's like, you do not want that on your resume. I'm like, why not? You're all fired up on Kerouac and, and trains and you're going to go right for your High Times. I know, exactly. But I mean, quite honestly, like if I'd had a different girlfriend or, you know, it, I, I I really do think like chance plays a role in lives more than we would like to admit. So I, I, you know, I very easily could have gone down a different path, but the job I ended up, and it was a struggle, you know, I was really struggling, you know, the first couple months. Um, I, I have a, a memoir, yet another book called life is a marathon where I kind of tell, I go through the blow by blow of the early days in, in San Francisco and it was rough. Uh, but the job, the, the, you know, the, the, the break, the big break I got was I got a job with a startup um, endurance sports magazine based in Marin County. It was called Multisport. Um, it, it just covered like all endurance sports. And and that and one thing led to another. I, I actually, I, I applied to MFA programs. I, I was planning to go to graduate school for, for poetry. And I, I applied, got into a couple places and ended up turning down those offers because that this like endurance sports writing gig was just fun as hell. And I, I thought, you know what, this is, this is too good to give up. Kirk, you joked that I knew a lot about him. I know nothing. <laughs> None <laughs> of us do. <laughs> so, so would you have become like, what is the 80, 20 equivalent of for high times? Like, is it like a, is there a sativa breakdown or something? What, would you have become that same clinical mind towards the optimal pot smoking lifestyle? I, I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, I mean, like, I, I mean, whatever I ended up writing about, like, you know, I have, you know, that, that's the kind of the fun of going back and looking at like those old poems I wrote. Cause I'm like, same guy, you know, like, I mean, you know, my brain works a certain way. Like um, it's part of the reason I have so many ideas. Like, you know, I, I could, I don't know. I could just watch like a political speech in a room full of 10 people. And then we talk about it afterwards. And my take is different from everyone else's in the room. And it just, it gives me things to write about. I just, I have my own perspective on things. So I bring that perspective to whatever I'm interested in. Um, so yeah, I think I would have had like a similar way of writing about the cannabis life or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you could you could be the first author bridge the two about CBD oil and running. There might be like a, a there's a market right now. There might be a market <laughs> yeah, for that one. No. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, well, okay. So I want to get to some questions with you, but before, so 
you've earned the credibility amongst our listeners already. Typically, we'll sort of build credibility about, among like an unknown guest, and and then we'll get into the the knowledge bombs. But we don't need to build credibility with you because the obvious. However, um, I just want to know personally before we jump into some like uh, questions that are probably going to help some people. Um, about your running, like what you're trying to accomplish currently, like if you could get us up to speed on what you're doing right now, just writing aside, um, like, what are you, what are you shooting for? What have you been shooting for? Like, where's your heart lie with that right now? Yeah. So, I mean, the elephant in the room, I just like, I've, I've been on the cusp of mentioning it, uh, in the preceding 45 minutes, but haven't, <laughs> haven't found the moment is that I, I can't run right now. I am not running. I am a COVID long hauler. Um, I got really? COVID. I got COVID very, very early um, at the. Mm. I went to Atlanta for the Olympic Trials Marathon in at very end of February, February 29th, March 1st, 2020. Uh, watched the Olympic Trials, ran the Atlanta Marathon the next day. Came home five days later, was symptomatic. Um, was sick for a month. Actually recovered from the virus, but then my health started to unravel a few months later. And so like around early October, 2020, I knew something was wrong and then, you know, just kind of did my research and there was more and more, uh, you know, just about this COVID, this long COVID thing. I'm like, oh my God, I have this, you know, just like it was uncanny, everything lined up. And so it's, I'm more than 13 months in now and I still can't run. Like I, I'm just like, it's like a, it's like a chronic illness. So, I mean, I look fine. I sound fine. You know, I, it's not, it's not going to kill me, but like, it's really debilitating. So um, it's funny. Cause like around that time, I mean, I, I was really getting after it and killing it. Cause like, you know, I lost a month to the virus and like, so everyone else is complaining, Oh, all the races are canceled. I'm like, Oh man, I'm, I'm going to get after these virtual races as soon as I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm healthy. And, and I did. So I was, uh, I was super fit and just loving it. Uh, you know, around the time this, this happened. And yeah, I had this, um, I had this, you know, I was just looking for like just whatever cool goal I could, I could uh, put in front of myself. So I wanted to, I knew I was going to turn 50 and I wanted to try to win my age group at the duathlon national championship, just like cherry pick. And it's like, no one can take that away from me. National champion. Um, but you know, I, I, I just, I wasn't able to do it. So right now, honestly, I'm just like, my goal is to be able to run again. Um, I actually stopped walking recently because I, I realized it was too much. Uh, so I, I like, I, I forgot to shower yesterday. Cause like usually all my bathing was triggered by getting sweaty in a workout. And now like, I'm not doing anything. Like I am completely sedentary. So like, sometimes I forget <laughs> to shower. Well, that's very California of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oof. So, so what, um, I had no idea is this, well, I guess first is, is this something I, I assume you've shared before we just obviously missed yes. that share. Um, and then like, what are you, what are you feeling like? This is, um, I've had a few athletes who are pretty wiped for quite a while after, yeah. after COVID a uh, month or two, still not feeling like themselves, but not, not this long, at least secondhand knowledge from somebody. So what, what are you, what are you feeling like? Like what would be that the day in the life, so to speak, out of curiosity? Yeah. I mean, the, the hallmark symptoms of long COVID are, you know, um, you know, fatigue. Yeah, it's funny, like a, a fellow long hauler just went on this Twitter rant a while ago that someone pointed me to. Uh, yeah, it, he's like, 
yeah, they say fatigue. That's not the word, you know, like mm -hmm. you need another word. It's like fatigue times infinity. And it's so true. Like there are times when it's like the exhaustion is so deep. You just feel like you're just falling, falling through. You just, you're like you lie down on the floor and you're like, I need lower. I need to get lower. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's like, like, this is too hard. Like brain dead, tired meets body dead, tired at the same time sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this. It, it's almost like it's almost like you want to escape your own body. It's like you just it just feels wrong to be in your own body. So and, and along with that comes like I mean, this stuff, this this illness was custom made to drive an endurance athlete insane because like uh, so you, you can just be exhausted for no reason. But but any type of activity. So they call it. Uh, exercise intolerance and also post-exertional malaise. <laughs> so there's Ooh. like this delayed effect, like 48 to 72 hours. That's what can make it so tricky um, is that, you know, a few months ago, I, I was feeling pretty close to symptom free for the first time. And so I took the chance of jogging a mile um, and it set me back for weeks, you know, because but I felt fine running the mile, but it was like this post-exertional malaise. That's also like brain fog, there's uh, paresthesia, so numbness and tingling in the extremities. Um, some people lose the ability to walk, at least temporarily. The brain fog is is terrible. Like, you know, it's just like, you, you just like you're like, if you, you feel like your mind has been hijacked. Um, like I do things like the, the image I, I like to share just to give people a sense of it. It's like, um, I, I, so you, I'm, I'm drinking out of this water bottle that I take uh, with me everywhere and I, i'm just filling it refilling it constantly throughout the day one time i so i refill it at the refrigerator and get my nice filtered water one time i pressed it up against a light switch uh to get water <laughs> you know it's just mm -hmm. like I, I come to and i'm like what am i doing uh, yeah it's just like it, it's, a, wow. it's a it's a full system it, it affects every system of the body uh you can get you know your gi system like just terrible terrible insomnia um, yeah, just, I, I, at one point I listed out the symptoms that I felt I could reliably attribute to the condition and it grew to 27, like 27 different systems. Like, yeah, you name it. I mean, that's, that's awful for anyone, but that's terrifying for an endurance athlete. And a writer. And a writer. Yeah, I know. I know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So yeah, I decided early on, I mean, uh, I like to share. I just like, I, I always find whatever I'm experiencing terribly interesting, whether it's good or bad. So, you know, I like to write about what I'm experiencing. Um, and, and so early on when I kind of realized what, in fact, I started sharing what I was going through even before I self-diagnosed the, the, the long haul thing. But the, the, the first time I really sort of like, I figured out what it was and I shared it publicly in, in a blog post my my book, The Comeback Quotient, had just come out. And, you know, like I have this really, this strong, this abiding interest in the psychology of endurance. So, you know, part of my job is like telling people how to think, like telling athletes how to think. And then, and then, and then here I am, this book comes out and I really have to walk my own talk, you, you know, and so that's sort of how I framed it. It's like, here we go. You know, in the, in the book, I give lots of examples of, of, you know, amazing pump comebacks that athletes have achieved. And, and, and a lot of the, a lot of the setbacks that, um, that, you know, the athletes whose stories I tell have experienced are they're, they're bigger than sports. You know, they're like, you know, it's cancer or, 
um, whatever, you know, just like big life-changing setbacks that yes, affect you as an athlete, but also affect, you know, er everything. And, and like, here I was like exactly in the boat, um, that these other athletes I'd written about were in. So it's like, put up or shut up. <laughs> That's tough. Have, have you, um, have you gone just out of curiosity, I'm a little bit of a granola eater undercover. Have you, have you gone like the Eastern medicine route, I assume at this point and trying to figure all that stuff out again, it's another personal curiosity, but have you, I'm sure you've gone down those paths. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I was braced for when I, you know, decided to share what was going on with, with me was like getting a lot of unsolicited advice <laughs> yep. and it's like, it's the full spectrum, you know, everything from doctors who are, you know, who just, you know, yeah, I don't know, just gave me their, their doctor perspective. And then, yeah, people who are really into Chinese medicine or acupuncture or whatever. And then, you know, which I don't consider wacky, um, but, but there were also some wacky ideas. I got. <laughs> there are, so, there are. I mean, I, I, my thought was like, I want to be open-minded, but also selective because you can't try everything. I mean, you could drive yourself nuts. Like, and I started to go down that road of like, it almost became a, a part-time job to, you know, to try to get better. Um, and, and nothing worked. So I'm like, you know what? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I try, I've tried, um, I've tried a lot of different things hmm. and uh, yeah, it's funny. It, you can, it really is hard to, to find anything that actually works. Uh, you know, it, like initially, you know, being who I was, I'm like, well, I'm, 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 I'm going to keep running, but I'm just going to not do any, anything intense. Um, and so I kept running for a while and I'm like, I'm just not getting better. And, you know, and giving up that, you know, the intensity and, and stuff, um, that didn't seem to do me any good. Um, and then I, then I decided, you know what, um, I'm just going to stop running altogether. Maybe I, I just didn't dial it back enough. So I stopped running, but I kept, you know, walking a lot and doing a little bit of weightlifting. Weightlifting is actually okay for a lot of long haulers. Cause it's, it's actually a sustained elevation in heart rate that seems to trigger the, you know, the post-exertional malaise. So, you know, I was walking four miles a day and, and lifting weights 20 minutes a day. And, you know, <clears throat> I still wasn't getting better. Like, so, you know, every time I would retreat a little bit from, you know, the prior level of activity, not only did it not produce the desired results, but I would actually lose the ability to do what I'd given up doing. So, I, I was able to run until I stopped running. Um, and then like, I went from like being, I was running uh, an hour every other day and feeling terrible, <laughs> but still I could do it. And now like, if I ran a mile, I, I would not be able to get out of bed tomorrow. Uh, like literally. Mm. Um, so it's just, it's weird. It's like, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny, you know, uh, 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 so my wife has a bipolar disorder and like she, after she was diagnosed, it was like 10 years of hell. Like where it was just like, nothing worked for her or for us either. And it was, it was just like, you feel like this is never going to end. Like, you know, you know, nothing works. Um, but you know, you know, she, her last hospitalization was back in 2013. So she's been like very, very stable, um, and just has had a new lease on life, you know, for, going on nine years now, or you know, probably eight plus years now. And, and when I look at like, okay, what, I, you know, when we were going through the, the hell together with her thing, I, I was, I kept looking for a silver bullet. And now looking back, it's like, there was no silver bullet. Like the answer was just like 
getting back up every time we were knocked down. And so that's sort of the attitude I'm trying to maintain toward uh, my situation. It's just like, just stay in the game. You know, I really feel like something is going to come around and it may be just piecing together a bunch of little stuff as my wife was able to do for, for her mental health. But I mean, you want that silver bullet, right? I mean, who wouldn't take one if you if it existed, but it doesn't exist. Well, and I suppose that there's not many cases crazy older than yours or like the body of research doesn't pre-exist you by very much. And so you're learning as the the established medical field learns as well. You know, funny enough, though, um, you know, prevailing opinion among experts is that this type of thing has existed as long as viruses have. It's just the sheer numbers hitting all at once that has drawn attention to it. So if you know someone who has been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, they probably got it from a viral infection. It could just be pneumonia. Um, so a certain percentage, in fact, there was a SARS outbreak in 2008, and there are people still long hauling from that today. Um, so it, it, like, apparently it, it, it's a thing. And like all, all these kind of weird, you know, the, the things where, and they do affect the, it, more women than men. Uh, and so like, you know, anyone who was like labeled a hypochondriac or an hysteric, or it's all in your head, like uh, it's a lot of that same stuff that's been around where you, you just get a virus, you, you overcome, the virus doesn't kill you, but it leaves its calling card behind and your health is never the same. Um, dysautonomias, uh, fibromyalgia, um, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff seems to be like a, a virus triggers it and then you're just, you're never the same. Um, so I think this is like, you know, again, I'm not the expert, but it seems like that's what the experts are saying. It's like, you know, this is, it's, it's newish, but it's not completely novel. This, this whole thing. Mm. This would be a messed up way to have uh, another writing breakthrough in perspective, wouldn't it? To be, yeah, comeback quotient part two, but it's completely revamped. Right. My goodness. Yes. It's an interesting position to have to take your own books and follow <laughs> them. You, you you don't know my backstory and we don't need to get into it, but the, the short version is that from like child through four years ago, I saw myself as athlete who coached. And then I got the injury bug, had a couple surgeries, lost my racing edge, lost my ability to really go to the well in races. And I turned to several books and several podcasts and several speakers, but yours is one of them. How bad do you want it was instrumental after my second surgery for me. And and now you <laughs> kind of get to experience the thing that you've helped so many people with. And that's a, I don't know if that's something that we hear about as much in this world as people who make their, their mark in life doing one thing and then get hit by that own thing. That's, that's a unique spot to be in. Yeah. It's pretty nutty. Uh, you know, one thing I, 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 I latched onto, it's one of the ways I've like sort of leveraged being a, an athlete who writes Mm -hmm. um, is that I, 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 I discovered the value a, a while ago of, um, uh, you know, the, the accountability that comes with publicly sharing your journey and even like publicly, sh share, public, publicly sharing your goals and aspirations. Um, you know, a good example of that is in 2017, um, I, I joined the NAZ elite team uh, in, in Flagstaff as an honorary member. So I, I was mm -hmm. 46 years old. Even when I was half that age, I was never anywhere near elite level. So here I am like embedding myself for 13 weeks 
with uh, you know a team of world class runners like half my age and just like soup to nuts. I lived the life, and you know I, the intent was to write a book about the experience, and I also kept a daily blog the whole time. And the Josh Cox, the agent for the the team, he actually pulled some strings and got me an elite bib to the Chicago marathon. So I, I raced the 2017 Chicago marathon as a pro. Like I was yeah. like, I was this, this, this close to Galen Rupp on the starting line, you know, um, you know, you know, 50,000 runners and 49,950 of them were behind me yeah. <laughs> at the start line. But I mean, that was a high wire act. Cause like, I mean, I, I was old and I was very injury prone. And like, you know, I remember telling Ben Rosario, the, the coach of the team before, before the, like, like, God bless him. Like when I asked, when I bounced this crazy idea off him, he said, yes, let's do it. But I told him, it's like, <laughs> I told him there is a probably a 75% chance I don't even make it to the start line of, of Chicago. Um, and I actually did suffer a pretty significant injury halfway through that experience and just achieved this kind of miraculous recovery. But the point is like, I, I put a ton of pressure on myself. You know, it's like, like if, if this thing doesn't work out, I have no book. I fail. I don't just fail. I fail in a majorly public way. Um, but I like that because mm -hmm. like, I mean, at, you know, that, that's sort of what the pros have to uh, have to do too. You know, it's like, they have all this pressure. Uh, you know, their livelihood depends on, on, on their ability to perform. So, you know, it can also break you that kind of pressure, but if you're strong enough for it, like you can achieve things you could not achieve otherwise. And, and so that's sort of like the, the perspective I'm taking on what I'm going through now. It's just like, I'm not trying to, I'm really trying hard not to let myself off the hook. You know, it's just like, you know, I don't feel good. I can't do what I used to do, but like, I almost view it like a competition. I, I keep like imagining I'm trying to win the long haul game. Like, you know, I, I can't, I can't do anything that's physically impossible, but I want to cope with this better than anyone else does. Like the, I mean, there's no, there's no way to judge it, but like, that's sort of my mindset and just like, and, and just that's part of the reason I, I share it um, is that it keeps the pressure on uh, to, you know, to not give up basically. I like that a lot. Kirk, I know we got to switch to a couple of your cut and dry answer sessions. But... And I have more and more questions now too. So it's just okay. nature. I, I do have a question <laughs> about kind of your general, not your philosophy, but why your career went in the way it went. And that is towards like the headspace aspect of running because the traditional route is someone coaches and then they monetize their coaching with a training plan book. And you've had pieces of that in there in 8020. You have plans to follow in the back, but your premise is not this is the polarized training Bible or this is the blank that runners must buy this and buy the plan and everything like that. What steered you towards teaching runners how to think about running rather than teaching runners how to physically perform the workouts that you prescribe out? It's just a matter of like, I always follow my own curiosity. Like I, I am a, a curious person and I, I'm just the kind of person that, you know, whatever I'm into, I'm way into. Uh, and, and like, and I've just, um, I, I'll say this. So I, I've mentioned him before, uh, my older brother, Josh, who he went to graduate school um, in computational neuro neuroscience. I mean, this guy's literally the smartest person I've ever, ever met. He just happens to be my, my brother, total brainiac. And, and he's had, um, he's been super interested in, in, um, you know, 
uh, and the mind. He's also a, a, a Zen Buddhist, um, so he's 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 super into the mind and the brain, and very you know, has a, a very strong scientific bent. So you know, he would just learn cool stuff and then kind of pass it along to me. Like he would find like, you know, a digestible popular science version of, of the stuff he was learning about in mm-hmm. his PhD program. Say, here, read this. And so, you know, you know, now like, you know, you got, you know, Tim Noakes is the person who's really credited with like bringing the brain into the discussion. But by the time he did that, I was already comfortable with sort of neurophysiology, even though I was an English major. So you know, as a, as an athlete, I was just, I, I felt like the, 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 the psychological d- dimension of the sport had been my limiter in, you know, my, the first chapter of my life as an athlete. And I hated that. So, you know, just, it was naturally kind of where my focus was. Um, like I knew, like I couldn't change my genes, you know, like I, I knew that my talent was limited, but I saw lots of potential, to, you know, make breakthroughs and improve. And it was sort of sky's the limit on the psychological side. And, you know, so I was into the brain and I felt like I was a step ahead of a lot of, you know, running writers and coaches just in terms of like being comfortable, like reading and and writing about the brain. Um, And then it's just, it's an inexhaustible subject. Um, You know, so I wrote, you know, brain training for runners in 2007 and I'm like, yeah, you know, I've got more to say. So there's like, if anyone who's read Iron War, um, like there's a lot, it's, that was the first time I really wrote about Sam Wellamar Cora, uh, the father of the psychobiological model of exercise tolerance. Uh, Sam Weller wrote the forward to how bad do you want it? But then I'm like, ah, I still got more to say. So that's hence the comeback quotient. Um, and, and I'm actually just now about to release um, a book on the art and science of pacing in running. Um, and it, it's really, I mean, pace, it's like this super deep dive on pacing. It's one of those things where you like it, pacing is so familiar to people. It's almost like, yeah, I know, I know what that is. It's a, it's a small part yeah. of the sport. And I'm like, no, it's the entire sport. Um, so mm. yes, on it goes. So you, you were the central governor hipster. You were yeah. doing it before it was cool. Yes. <laughs> is that what I'm getting out of this? Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll make sure to let Noakes know that. <laughs> how many uh how many books have you written it's in the 20s or so is that accurate yeah i don't i mean there's some it's like do you count it or like i've you know i've, yeah, I've, sure. I've like i ghost wrote a book for dean Carnazdis. i mean i guess it counts um you know i've co-authored a, a couple of books what one book was just like really it was just a glorified training diary i was like does that count i don't know but if you count everything it's like 30 ish okay and if this is a terrible question for me to ask, so you can deny me, but which is there a book that has your heart up to this point? Like something like a flagship book for you or a something that for some reason just feels like Matt Fitzgerald to you more than others or no? Well, um, you know, like I'll answer the question this way. Like if, if, if there were a book that, um, like if, if, if someone said, Matt, I'd like to read one of your books. <laughs> um, and I knew nothing about this person other than that they wanted to read one of my books. And I, I wanted to you know select something that I felt would be the closest thing to a, a guaranteed pleaser for that person. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you won't hate this, like knowing nothing about you. It would actually be Running the Dream, the book I, I wrote about my fake pro running experience. That one's, that's the... 
it's really the um it's it's one of only two books i've ever written that's actually completely narrative like it's just you know non storytelling uh that's it like i i'm the central character it's you know it's gonzo journalism like where the the, the journalist is the story mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but i think it's like I think that that book, it's, it ended up being like, I ended up coming away from that experience with a very good story to tell. So it was just mine to screw up. Um, And I really struggle with it. Like uh, for a while, I'm like, I can't make this work. Like what's wrong with me? Like, it's such a great story. And like, you know, the first draft sucked, the second draft sucked, the 10th draft sucked. Um, But I just kept with it. And now it's just like, um, you know, Alex Hutchinson, uh, um, it's one of his favorites of, of mine. And, and you know, when he reviewed it for his column, you know, he said, it's just like, it's easy, fun and, and page turning and interesting. You know, it's just like, so it's maybe not, it's not, it's like, it's like, it's maybe I, I do. I've written other books that are like, are more like mind blowing or, or whatever. Like this one isn't that it's like, it's like candy. It's just like, it's just like, you, you can read it in a day. And a lot of people do. That it's interesting that you had trouble writing about your own experience because the easiest thing to write about is what we know, but the hardest thing to capture is what you felt like to make sure that everyone else can feel how awesome the experience was for you. Like you could describe someone else's experience better than you could describe your own because it's too visceral. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Well, you know, my problem was that, yeah, it was just, it was so, it was just, it was like, it was, I mean, it's called running the dream for a reason. Like it, it I felt like I was living inside of a dream for the, for those hmm. 13 weeks. And, you know, I kept a daily, I mentioned, I wrote a blog about it. So I was keeping a daily journal and it was just my way of like, you know, getting it all down. Like, I didn't care if the writing was terrible. I'm just like, you know, cause the memory is faulty. I just wanted it all down. And then, you know, when I got back to California and I sifted through it, I'm like, I want to keep all this. It's just like, I can't, I can't cut any of this. So like, you know, the early drafts were more than a hundred thousand words long. And that was the problem. It was just bloated. Like I was just, my dad calls them little darlings. Like you just, you get attached to, you know, these, you know, these things that you, you you just, it it kills you to cut them out of a book. But then, you know, it's like, it's hard until it's easy. Like I I got to a point and just like, you know, this crisis moment where I'm like, I've got to find a way to make this work. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to cut this by 30%. And like, I'm just, it was like an art, it was like an artificial or arbitrary number, but I'm just like, I'm just going to be ruthless. I'm just going to start hacking. And that's what got me over the hump. I started, it was really being more empathetic. Like I was, yeah, like, yeah, every single moment was special to me, but every single moment's not going to be special to readers. It's like, so let's tease out like what, what, what those folks are really going, what's really going to grab them. And the other stuff I can just, you know, reminisce on privately. Is that the typical process, writing too much and then needing to cut for most writers or for you in particular? I guess I don't really know that answer. I'm curious. It's pretty common. And, and, and interestingly, it's actually become more common since the advent of the word processor. Because, like, think about it. Like, typing is a pain in the butt. And you 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 don't want to... Like if you write something, you've got to change or cut. It's like it's not easy. Like remember whiteout. Like you know, <laughs> you know, like you're like you're you're painting over the words you've typed <laughs> mm-hmm. on a piece of paper. It's just like so. You know, people writers were a lot more careful. Like they, they put a lot more thought into their first attempt to craft each sentence. 
Now it's just like, whatever. And so, yeah, they're like, in fact, this has been tracked, like books have actually gotten longer since the advent of the word processor, but a lot of it's fluff and fat. So I think it's, I wouldn't say that like, you know, every book goes through that stage where it's too big and you have to put it on a diet, but it, it's, it's pretty common. Okay. Earlier, Kirk said that we don't have to establish your credibility because everyone knows because we've referenced your, like our views in many ways echo yours. But at the same time, I do not want to misrepresent anything you feel. You know, it's like, I shouldn't speak for that. So I do want you to take a few seconds and just summarize your your principles, your theory of training. Kirk has the add-ons that are going to come next, but I do want to hear from the horse's mouth exactly what you feel on these things. The way I look at it, and again, this is something I articulate in uh, that forthcoming book I referenced uh, that I did with Ben Rosario, Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow, is um, I mean, that's why I wrote that book, actually, is that hmm. I, I believe in studying elite best practices and um, passing them along to athletes of all, all abilities. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I feel that, um, you know, the, the most successful athletes do what they do for a reason. Um, and it's like, you know, I, I think I love science, but I think, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of, you know, people who write about running and even coaches put a little too much on science and not quite enough on, on, on the real world. Um, you know, I, I write about this a lot, how, um, you know, there's, um, elite sport is a self-optimizing system. So th there's a, there's a form of evolution that occurs in these methodologies and it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's every bit as stringent as natural selection, you know, among species. It's like, if, if shit doesn't work, it will not survive. <laughs> and, and so like, and, and like, look at like, you know, the, the modern version of the sport of distance running is 150 years old. Now that is a lot of time. And there's at the very top, it's so competitive. There's so much at stake. The, you can't just, no matter how talented you are now, you cannot get to the stop top and stay there. If you're doing things wrong, you, you just can't, not going to happen. So, um, and then of course, yeah, okay. People will, the, that's a pretty understandable, um, you know, point, but then everyone come, the skeptics are always like, yeah, but yeah, those, those folks are made out of space materials and like, they're not even human. So what works for them can't possibly work for me. And that's just not true. Like, you know, they're human. They're not that different from the rest of us. Um, it's just a handful, a sprinkling of genes that make elites different from everyone else. And they pretty much have nothing to do with which methods work and don't work. Um, and so the commonalities vastly outweigh the differences. So that's been, and that was really my approach. Like as an athlete, when, you know, when I got that job at multi-sport magazine, um, and, and that's, that was the, I was 24, I was 206 pounds smoking a ton of pot. As I said, like, like that, that is when. I started, you know, the spark was reignited and I started to get back into you know, running and then triathlon. And that, and, and so that's what I did. You know, part of my job was like interviewing Dave Scott, six time winner of the Ironman triathlon and just like passing on his knowledge. Well, guess what? I would start to practice what I learned from him. I wouldn't just write about it. I would go out and do it. And so that was my orientation. I'm like, uh, it doesn't matter that 
I'm not half as talented as, as these people. Like I want to do, it's like, I'll have what he's having, you know, like who won the race. I want to know what that person's doing. And, and like, if there's a study that backs it up, great, but I'm, I'm really, I've got most of my attention on those elite best practices. So that is my shtick. It's like studying elite best practices really in, in training, nutrition and psychology, and then, you know, passing those along to everyone. I like that. I like that you don't put science above and beyond its usefulness. We're in a stage where being a contrarian is very promoted and it's refining first principles and best practices and marketing or in business, but the human element of running really changes everything. And sometimes science has to back up what, what you talk about that natural selection has already proven. And that's a tough balance for a lot of people because you either get the science mind or the human mind. There's not a lot of people who want to play both sides of that coin. Yes. Though, you know, there's, you know, definitely the, the exercise scientists that, you know, I respect the most. Um, Steven Seiler's a great example, uh, you know, the, the discoverer of the, the, the 80, 20 intensity balance. And I noticed mm-hmm. I said discoverer, not inventor <laughs> because, mm-hmm. because nobody invented it. That's the whole idea. Um, but, you know, if you if you go to YouTube and 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 type in Steven Seiler, you'll you'll the first link will be or the first video that will come up will be a TED talk he gave. And that's like the whole point of his TED talk is that, um, he, you know, he had this moment of, of, of epiphany where, you know, he was a, an, a young exercise scientist, you know, looking to make his mark. And he had this experience that that showed him. I actually don't know what the best athletes in the world do. <laughs> and, and he's like, and it matters. Like, you know, like I, I could know absolutely everything in the scientific literature. And if I just applied that and only that to training real human athletes, I would do a terrible job. <laughs> it's like, you know, you know, you know, the, the best athletes are just off doing their own thing. And, and, you know, science doesn't really square with it. So, you know, he's sort of on a mission to, to get other sports scientists. He's like, you got to move the laboratory outside the laboratory. And it's not like he's dismissing science. He's a scientist, but he's saying like, you, you really need to have one foot in, in both domains. One of the better analogies I ever heard is like trying to cook by taking pictures of the ingredients that are needed. Right. Like, you That's know good. what goes into it. Now go cook. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. You've got to watch the chef prepare it. That's the only yeah. way or have them write it down. So I think we need people writing down what they're doing. Can you match it one-to-one? No, but principles are principles. Yes. Yep. You, uh, I suppose all writers are probably researchers, but it almost sounds like maybe leading with the research foot has been integral to your writing. Is that, is that true then? Would you say? Yeah, though, you know, I guess my approach to it is more of just like an, an open sponge-like immersion. Um, so I just, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm very curious and I, I just have like a unique perspective on things. So I just, um, if something grabs my interest, I, I don't necessarily go, I'll, I'll, I'll immerse myself into it, but not necessarily with any idea of what I want to get out of it, if that makes any sense. So, so when I think of re when I think of research, it's like, you kind of have an agenda not that you prejudge what you're going to learn, but you're like, you know what you want to get out of the research. Whereas I seldom do. I'm just like, uh, this is cool. <laughs> and then, and then I'll just, you know, I'll just dive in and just let the most, cause I think most of what goes on um, in our brains is 
behind the veil of consciousness. It's just like all the real action is subconscious. So for me, it just works. Like I don't have to, it's actually, it, um, it's nice because you can just sort of relax into these immersive experiences. And like, you, it's like, don't worry, it will take care of itself. If, if you're just curious and you pay attention and you spend the time, like you'll come out of it with something you want to share. Uh, just, you know, let it happen. I like that. Bracken, um, it's funny, Matt. We uh, we told ourselves that we were only going to bullshit for about a half hour before getting to the question. <laughs> <laughs> we're at an hour 20. That's classic us, Bracken, now, isn't it? I place the blame on you. I totally. My, yeah, I'm the talker of the bunch, aren't I? In your defense, you didn't come into this interview knowing I was a poet with long COVID, so... No, no, no. Fair. Nor the extent Fair. of your drug use. <laughs> oh, we haven't gotten into the extent of my drug use. <laughs> we could tack another half hour out of this episode if we had to. Um, to preface some of the questions, Matt, um, you uh, are you coaching currently like one-on-one um, -on -one athletes or how does that relationship look before we get into some of these questions? Yeah, I have uh, currently six athletes I, I coach one-on-one. -on -one. Like, about, I try to cap it at five uh, just because, like, I, I feel like I only have time and energy to, you know, properly, like, coach five people the way I want to coach people. Um, I had one athlete I used to coach who came back and said, will you coach me again? And I was already capped out at five, and so that's why I have six. Been there. Okay, yeah. curious. So you, you're obviously a very high involved coaching process is what it sounds yes. like, I would assume, then with, with a lower number of athletes. Okay, just wanted to uh, feel you out there. So some of these questions are going to be like pretty basic. You're like, that's kind of a dumb question, but it can also facilitate conversation. So um, and we should preface, I guess, we started this because this is off season for a lot of people. Yep. They finished their fall marathon. Uh, probably 50% of our listeners are, are OCR or multi-sport athletes. The big championships are mostly done. This is the time of year where people are realizing how poorly things went or how well they went. And they want to take the next step. Either way, they're looking for a system to implement themselves or a coach or a book. And we're trying to give them every option with our views out of it so that they can sort through and see what speaks to them, combine mm -hmm. it together, move forward. So even if they're pedantic questions, it will be put against what they've heard from other people so that they can make their mind up. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Three philosophy questions for you, Matt, um, or just uh, general thoughts on them. Um, what is your philosophy? We'll start with the simple questions. Uh, what is your philosophy on strength training and its necessity or approach for runners? I hope I don't end up sounding like a broken record, but I would, again, with, with anything like that, look at what the elites do. Um, like how do elite runners strength train? And, you know, I deal with this all the time. I'll, I'll have someone, yeah, I also, I do like a custom training plan service. And sometimes someone will say, yeah, I want to train for my first 50 K. And, you know, so they fill out a questionnaire for me and, and I want to know what they're currently doing and, and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And if someone says, I currently, uh, I do, um, CrossFit five times a week, uh, I'll be like, find another coach. It's like, like I, I, if you won't let me talk you out of that, find someone else. There's plenty of other options out there. So like that, I will, I will, in strength training, I will steer people toward, um, I get it. Like there's a, there's a guy I coach one-on-one -on -one right now. And he was like doing more of like a, like he was doing like bench pressing and like military presses. I'm like, why do you do that? 
is it because you want to look a certain way? It's like, yes. I'm like, okay, as long as it's on the table. Like if you, if you want a way to strength train, that's actually going to give you better results for your running. Uh, we'll revisit that. But I actually let him keep his bench pressing and military. Like how many days per week and what type yep. of like maybe setup or movements do you kind of prescribe to, so to speak? And I would interrupt our own question by saying, I would say this is one of those places that has not optimized in pro training camps because there are vastly different methodologies out there between like an right. Oregon project versus yeah. an NAZ. Like it is mm-hmm. very night and day. Yeah, that, that is, that is true. Um, so I guess, uh, uh, yeah. So I, I still think there's probably um, a methodology that is represents kind of a plurality, if not a majority in, in, mm-hmm. at, at that level. Um, and so it'd be like, you know, two full body functional strength workouts per week. Um, ideally you, you fit it where you can, if you're, you know, working a job and you have kids, but like, Ideally, those two sessions would fall on quality days after, uh, you know, the you hit the track or whatever. Um, and then if if you're really into it, and most of the people I coach one on one are, um, you do like you know sort of corrective exercise on every other day. So like 20 minutes in the morning or 20 minutes in the evening, just kind of doing uh, mobility stuff, like you know sort of like that that prehab rehab type of strength stuff, like working on strengthening your feet and, and that sort of stuff. So that would be more or less daily. Um, and then the, the, you know, the two full body functional strength workouts that could take like 45 minutes to an hour a piece. Okay. And do you, do you believe in putting the body under heavy load, uh, can be beneficial is to stimulate the nervous system and just like, you know, un- put the body under stress for more adaptation, or do you more believe, like you said, functional, movements, which might infer body weight or higher right. rep count type stuff. What, what do you think there? I, I think both are beneficial. You know, one of the things I like about strength training is that, um, like, honestly, any amount of anything is better than nothing. And, you know, the research backs that up. And so when, when I'm dealing with a runner who's just like, I hate lifting weights, I don't want to do it. I'm like, here, just start with this, you know, and I'll give them, you know, literally like a 15 minute at home body weight routine to do. And guess what? They notice the benefits and then, and then maybe they're willing to dip their toes in a little further. So, so um, I think like you could, you could, you could isolate one specific thing. I mean, you could do only heavy lifts or only rehab prehab stuff and you would benefit from either. That doesn't mean the other isn't also beneficial and that the benefits aren't complementary. So yeah, the, the program should be well-rounded. I like that answer. That's the best answer we've gotten so far. What would you say, Bracken? Yeah, I think At least so. At aligns with what I, what I feel. Okay. Um, okay. Listen to me saying what answers are good or not based on how I feel about them. <laughs> well, I, honestly, probably I, I, don't, I don't know a ton about you guys, but I, I would assume that like if you disagreed with me and said why – I would be convinced, you know, so like, I don't really, you know, for, quite honestly, um, you know, for a lot of the custom, uh, custom training plans I do, if someone says, you know, one of the questions on the questionnaire is like, do you want me to give you a, you know, strength workouts? If the answer is yes, I, I actually give them ready-made workouts uh, developed by an expert, you know, precisely because I don't consider myself an expert. That makes sense. Okay. Um, all right. What is your philosophy on uh, the use of the treadmill in a purposeful 
run program or performance is important? Um, well, I mean, you, I mean, obviously you can, you can train very, very effectively without ever running on a treadmill. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, more the, the question is like, can you train as effectively if you do train on, on the treadmill? And if, when that question comes up, I, I point to Christine Clark, who won the 2000 Olympic trials marathon for the U S after training only on a treadmill <laughs> up until race day. Um, so yeah, she was a surprise winner and she won largely because it was a hot race and Christine had been training through an Alaskan winter. And so she was indoors in a warm room. And so she was heat acclimatized. Um, so that may be the specific reason she won that race, but it like, it proves that treadmill running is in fact running. Cause like you can't win an elite level marathon, right. you know, having trained only on the treadmill unless it worked. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny, I, you know, I own a treadmill and, you know, before I got long COVID, I would, I live in California for crying out loud and I use the heck out of it. Um, you know, if I wanted like, you know, just like something really structured, certain kinds of sessions, they just lend themselves to the treadmill. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I don't, I don't turn my nose up at it for sure. What model do you like? What do you have? Uh, it's just, it's, um, it's, uh, it's just a Nordic track, uh, bought it at Sears. You know, it's fine. Like, you know, we bought the extended warranty thing and, you know, so it's like on its fifth motor. Mandatory now. with Nordic track, yeah. almost any treadmill, but mandatory. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I had a, a tech come over to, um, to calibrate it and whatever. And he's like, oh, it was only 3% off. I'm like, 3% is gigantic, <laughs> dude. Are, are you kidding me? Like if I started a marathon 3% too fast, I would not finish. <laughs> yeah, 3% uphill is not flat. <laughs> um, okay, I'm satisfied with that one. Do you believe, I guess the follow-up question to that would be, do you believe uh, it has its place for hill training? Um, like, it, like, is it really a true perk? Or is it a by the way of the treadmill? I mean, if you live in, um, you know, where we do, Bracken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's funny because, you know, I've mentioned that I'm injury prone. So what I started doing, I remember coming across a study that found that the, the brain's motor program that it uses to run steeply uphill and walk steep, steeply, up, steeply uphill at a certain, there's like a crossover point where it's the same motor program. Like your brain literally does not know if you're running or walking. Um, so I, I'm, I saw that. I'm like, huh. And so I actually started doing uh, steep uphill treadmill walks as, as my primary form of, of cross training for running. And, you know, I trained for my first 50 miler and I probably um, did t spent twice as much time doing that as I did uh, running. And there's, there's simply no way I could have gotten as fit as I did and performed as well as I did in that race. If, if it didn't count, you know, like it, it clearly made a huge contribution to my running fitness. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, if, if the, you're, yes, it's real, you're really going uphill, you're really working against gravity and you're really either running or walking. We generally don't argue on these because it's for someone to present their view, but we, <laughs> We, if we did disagree, we would just say, oh, interesting. But the fact is we agree with that. We, we actually love incline hiking as non-impact cardio. Right. And it's interesting to hear that you prepped for a 50 that way, because that's 
very like that that crossover that goldilocks grade so to speak where is it better to run or hike and your brain doesn't right. really know the difference like that's right. a powerful zone yeah mm-hmm. we are both nordic tracking client trainer owners users <laughs> nice. advocates so you're you're actually speaking to your people when we start getting into that power hiking uphill realm good to know yeah all fact, right i did it for an hour last night of course you did my quads were all beat up from a hill workout so you did more hills. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> they were beat up from the descents, not the up. <laughs> right. Um, do you have a general philosophy or what are your thoughts on shoes? Like, have you developed any thoughts there over the years? Um, I know it's that's a very subjective question based on the user, but what do you think there? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a shoe guy. Um, I'm not, I'm really not a gear or tech guy when it comes down to it, but, um, you know, a while back I become, I became kind of infatuated with the work of, uh, Ben O'Nig, um, at the university of Cal- Calgary, a biomechanist who did a lot of research on, um, perceived comfort in, in footwear. Um, and, you know, with my whole perspective on, on the brain and, you know, the biopsychological model, I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, I, I just, I, I'm a strong believer that what you feel and perceive is not noise, it's information. Um, so um, I started beating the drum of like comfort matters. And actually, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because there was just a study that, that just came out. It was published within the last week or two that I, I wanted to flag to write a blog post about. But it showed that um, when, when, uh, when runners are permitted to choose select footwear by comfort, they are more economical than than when they're in something that's less comfortable. Yeah. I think your feet know more than, than you think they know. Yeah. We had two people, Kirk and someone else both said like the main criteria for choosing a shoe is putting your foot into it and going, ah, like that's it. Like that, that's your foot telling you I'll respond to this. Even if the shoe doesn't make sense for your distance, yeah, you will be more economical when you're happy. Yes, I agree. Though, what is most comfortable twenty miles into a run on pavement isn't necessarily the same thing that's most comfortable in in the store. Mm-hmm. Correct. True. Yeah, that's yeah. a good caveat. It's the shoe that supports you on your last mile, not your first mile. Exactly. As far as um, a handful of what you would consider, like, and you've written books about these things, so. Uh, like the the handful of the most common runner mistakes, like just the easy bullet points. Like, what do you see? What are like the things you wish you could just take away from the running world and be like, these you do not do anymore. Do you have anything that jumps out? I mean, getting stuck in the moderate intensity rut is, is number one um, mm-hmm. for sure. So, you know, you know, getting people onto the 80, 20 train um, is number one. Uh, over racing is another one. Preach. That's a constant battle when you're a coach. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, I've fortunately like I've written so many blogs and articles, like I've got one for every occasion. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I moderate uh, the 80, 20 endurance, you know, athlete forum. And yeah, wh- whenever I, I did this just recently, th- there was an athlete who clearly was racing way too much. And I, I just, my answer to her question was a link to a blog post I'd written the title of which is uh, racing is the enemy of training. Uh, so that, so that's another one, um, you know, trying to keep the momentum going. So, you know, um, trying to milk a peak too long is, is especially, you know, like for less experienced runners, they come from that sort of get fit, stay fit, like, you know, gym fitness mentality. It's like, Oh, why would I give this up? It's like, because mm-hmm. you have to. 
Uh, so, so that's another one, you know, like definitely, um, you know, a lot of runners don't strength train enough or they don't strength train, you know, in they, the, the method they choose is kind of a, you know, suboptimal, <laughs> I should say. It's kind um, of way to put it. Yeah. You know, um, the, you know, part of the reason I was motivated, um, another one that's actually sort of a new one, but it's becoming something that I think a lot is dominating my coaching attention a lot more is um, device over dependence. You know, that wasn't a thing in 1983 when I started running. Um, but yeah, device over dependence is, it's huge and growing. That was a few, right? Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. That's something we don't dive into. And that's the secret pet peeve of mine is relying on devices or to tell them where they're at in their training or racing or peak or letting that dictate what you are doing versus just like actually listening to your, to your body once in a while. But my, my recovery score is 46. I'm going to yeah. suck today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a problem. All right. You talked about strength a little bit, maybe about two days a week, ideally, maybe some ancillary work a few times a week for shorter periods. Do you have a thought on the minimum number of days that an athlete should aspire to run in order to come as close to their peak potential in the sport as they can. Like, Hey, for example, I've been a chronically somewhat injured runner and I've made a career on running three days a week and cross training three or four. And I'll say I've been successful, for example. Um, do you have a number in your mind that you believe can get you 95% of the way there and why, if you do? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, every runner should, uh, every runner who's, well, actually, I mean, even if you're not a runner, you know, science says you should do aerobic exercise daily, you know, just to, you know, to be healthy. And so if you're a runner, that's your baseline. Like you should already be doing aerobic exercise daily. And then if you actually want to improve as a runner, you know, you go from there. Uh, so I, you know, I push athletes hard in the direction of getting up to that level of, of frequency. Now for running, I would say it, it it need only be three runs per week, um, but that aerobic, some sort of you know cardio training should be six to seven times per week uh, minimum. Now you have a multi-sport knowledge base as well, which is really oftentimes viewed snobbishly by a a pure running community. But I think that they're on to some things as well, and I, I'm curious how much that influences what you talk about that. You would not hear many running coaches say, "Eh, run three, but get a lot of hiking or get get some other things in." Right? Do you, how much do you think that true purposeful cross training can make up for days running? Like, can you really? Could you get ninety percent of the way there to your ceiling off three days a week? Yeah, I, I'm certain of it. I mean, the science is there. It's not, there isn't like a great depth of science in this area, but what there is, um, is pretty compelling, but it's, you know, there's a difference between sort of, you know, believing something in your head and believing it in your bones. And I probably wouldn't believe that science in my bones if I hadn't lived it, you know, you know, I, I had this, um, this is tangential, but uh, in 2019, I did my first Ironman in 17 years. And, um, and I, I wasn't really swimming or biking when I, when I committed to doing it. And so I signed up for the race 11 months out and I knew I needed every single one of those 11 day, every day of those 11 months to get ready. Yeah. And 
actually for most of those 11 months, I was not able to run because of you know one of my many, many overuse injuries. And then it, it only started to come around literally just weeks before my Ironman. And I had already signed up for the Boston Marathon um, earlier and I needed to go there to like promote a book anyway. So I'm like, ah, I'll just do it. And I ran 254 uh, on uh, on race day at like a 95% effort. And I had only run, I could count the number of times I had run in the past 11 months before that. And it's not because I'm the world's greatest runner and I don't need to train. It's because the cross training worked. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So like I, I've done things that just, they, they couldn't be possible if cross training didn't work. So I, I'm a huge believer in it. And you know, too many runners, like they won't cross train until they have to. And so unless you're Dean Carnazes and you just never get injured no matter what you do, like I, I really, I think most runners who just really want to be the best they could be should keep that in the mix. You should, you should have some kind of at hand fallback that's just there for you, you know, whether it's cycling or an elliptigo or uphill treadmill hiking or, or whatever. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm a huge believer. So what's your hierarchy then of non-running exercises in terms of their carryover? Yeah, I mean, I've written a ton of this. Like I, I've, I've got lots of hierarchies and, you know, I shuffle them around a little bit, but it's like, yeah. you know, the, the, the more similar it is to running without actually being running, the better. So if you, if you got, I don't know, 50 grand to drop on an alter G anti-gravity treadmill, go for it. Uh, that actually, that is running. Um, um, so yeah, I think, you know, swimming would be a lot lower on the hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. It's aerobic, but it's, you know, it's, there's, I mean, it's not even it, non-impact it's non weight bearing, um, mm -hmm. and it's yeah, upper body dominant. Um, so like higher, high on the hierarchy would be alter G uphill treadmill hiking. Um, yeah, I have one of those elliptigos, like an elliptical train oh, yeah? wheels you can ride outside. Uh, yeah. that works. I can tell you, um, yeah. Indoor cycling, outdoor cycling, cross country skiing, inline skating. Uh, there's a ton of options. Uh, uh, you know, shallow water running, like is, I think it's better because it's weight bearing mm -hmm. versus deep water running. Yeah. Snowshoeing. Snowshoeing. I was going to wait to, to, um, to ask this next question, but since you, you walked me into it a little bit, um, the first question probably won't make sense with my preface, but the second one will, um, I'm going to give you a, a range 5k to marathon distance. So I'm giving you a pretty broad spectrum here. I'm gonna give you two scenarios. Okay. One, you're only allowed to run 20 miles per week capped. You can do all the quality work your heart desires. The only thing you can do is run. We're going to take cross training out of the equation even. Or you can run all the miles your heart desires. But once you breach like, yeah, you know, your lactate threshold, let's say you can't even, you can't even come within three, four or five beats of that. You always got to stay under that lactate threshold, but you can do all the volume you want. And your goal is to run well in the 5K to marathon distance in general. Which do you choose and why? Um, I, I would choose the latter because um, I just think that like volume is is king. Like you you can you can get relatively close to the mountaintop uh, either way, but I think you can get closer with just insane volume. Um, I remember talking to uh, Bobby McGee years ago, and he when he was co coaching college runners, he said he would do this thing where he would he would only allow his athletes to do exactly that, like unlimited amounts of 
slow running like uh, through the entire summer. And then he would actually toss them all into a 5K time trial. And a lot of them would PR. <laughs> and, and he's like, see? <laughs> like yeah. he was trying to get them to understand in their bones, like volume is magic, folks. Um, like it's the gift that just keeps on giving. Um, so yeah, that's my answer. Okay. Well, the caveat now is in addition to your 20 miles a week of whatever quality work you'd like to do, you can supplement with as much aerobic cross training as you'd like, but you're still capped at 20 or you pick the ladder like you just did still. And you die on that rock of volume, but not quality. Which one are you picking? I'll jump ship on that one. You must've known I would say this. Yeah. I kind of had an idea after your explanation here. (laughs) I still believe this deep into the interview. I still believe cross training works. <laughs> I haven't changed my mind. Oh, we're not trying to catch you, but we ask other people the same questions. <laughs> you believe that metabolic conditioning, even if it's not in the biomechanical modality of running, obviously has that much weight in which it can sub out all your aerobic work if needed. Let's say if your back was into a corner. Yes. So then if you are going the big volume, low, low, low quality approach, like way more polarized than 80-20. What are the bare minimum skill requirements of speed and sport that you would have to keep in there for an athlete? Like I cannot, like we just heard about this with Molly Seidel. She can't handle true quality work. So I'm sure it was a, a like a gross overstatement, but we just scrapped quality work. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sure that wasn't fully it, but like someone like that, I cannot handle intensity but I still have to be able to race. What do you keep in there skill-wise for speed maintenance or development? I, you know, I would do exactly what I did actually with myself during that, uh, that six-month window when, um, when I had recovered from COVID and before I started on, on the long-haul thing. Um, I, my friend James McCurdy uh, decided to do like some, a series of virtual one-mile races. Mm. And I, so I decided, you know, I had just recovered from COVID. I was, uh, I had just, I was on the cusp of turning 49 and I'm like, I want to break five minutes in, in the mile. Like, uh, and, and, but I knew like I had to be careful, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I just, I could, I, I was, I was maybe not, I, well, who knows with Molly, but, um, I, I could not handle a lot. And, and so I just went way, I leaned way into the volume, uh, relying a lot on cross training to get that volume. And then I would just do these, um, you know, the, the, the mistake I made before is that I would try to do epic workouts, but I would space them out more. And it didn't really work that well. So I decided, okay, I'm actually going to keep the frequency of my forays into higher intensities about what it, what it would have been when I was 25, but I'm just going to do very light workouts. So it would just be like a handful of inter- intervals. So like I, I was I was doing the quality, but just like just smaller amounts of it. The minimum viable dose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. So like a lot of fast finishes, you know, where I would do something in the, you know, critical velocity to threshold range and then, you know, like mile repeats, but, you know, just, you know, short, shorter ones. And, and, you know, I, yeah, I ran a 455 mile off of that. And I I remember like, I mean, it'd been a long time since I'd run a, a, a sub five. My, my, and it's, again, it's like, well, I could not have done this if what I did didn't work. I'm sure that that little bit of high intensity 
was difference making, you know, that if it had just been all volume, all low intensity, I couldn't. There's that concept, that belief in a lot of coaches and runners that in order to race at that pace, you must spend a lot of time at that pace, that it's your bodily, your body handling that pace rather than what's truly happening during that. And I think it's good to hear reminders from time to time that you can actually race a, a pace you've never run. Yeah. If the engine's built properly. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a big believer in, in what you just said is Ben Rosario. He, ha- he, he, he has a, his, his team, they have this saying, um, when you're fit, you're fit. Um, and he gives an example in, in Run Like a Pro. Um, I forget who it was, but it was one, one of the members of the team who um, I think PR'd. She was training for like a, like a 3,000 meter track race, or maybe it was a guy. Uh, it doesn't matter. But the athlete was like training for, let's just say, a 3K track race and then decided to run a half marathon like spontaneously a week later and PR'd in the half marathon and like had, had done absolutely nothing specific to the half marathon, but was super fit and well-rounded. Um, and when you're fit, you're fit. Mm. Yeah. The people that need race pace work the most are the people who mentally need race pace work. Right. I think. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Engine's engine, right? Fit mm. is fit. Yes. And it's shocking how often that happens. Someone mm-hmm. trains for, you see it all the time in track. Someone trains for the 10K, they don't get the standard, jump into the 1500 and make the team. Mm-hmm. And then they switch over to the 1500 and train as a 1500 runner and they don't progress. Right. <laughs> but how often someone changes lanes and realize, wow, I, I was way better at that than I thought I'd be. Yep. Mm-hmm. Got five questions left for you. I'm hoping we can wrap this up somewhere in the two hour range here. Okay. Um, last thing. And then I'm just asking you four last questions about coaching, but one more specific about uh, workouts. This is an unfair question. I understand that you get one workout, Matt, only one workout that you can prescribe to your athletes through eternity. One flashy quality workout. Again, the gamut 5k to marathon, let's say it's just the flash. It's the glitter. You only get one and they have to repeat this workout, different variations of it. Sure. But constantly it's the one that you believe is the most bang for your buck. What is it? Uh, you know, uh, this is a running forum question and we understand that, but it's fun to hear. That is a terrible question. (laughs) I'd be upset if someone asked me, but I still like talking about it. Yeah. I don't know. I've I've become enamored within the past couple of years of 30, 15 intervals. So, you know, it's like a VO2 max workout. Um, it works a little better in cycling than it does in running, but 13 sec, uh, 30 seconds on 15 seconds off. Uh, the baby version is three sets of eight. So you're, you're accumulating a lot of time at or near uh, VO2 max, but it, it's in a manageable way. So in, in, you know, in validation studies of this format, like they'll give you a more traditional VO2 max session with longer intervals. And then they'll give the athletes this other version and physiologically they're the same or no physiologically, actually the 3015 gives you more accumulated time at or near VO2 max, but perception is the same. It's like, they don't, it doesn't feel harder, mm. but it's more physiologically stimulative. I suppose with that, like 15 seconds off in quotes, like cardiac drift, your heart rate's not really deviating much in that, in that workout. You're getting the heart rate up and then you're going to see a small wavelength maybe, but very minor, I suppose. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's also, you know, I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm the mind guy and it's, it's, it's just a fun way to suffer 
And so I think re that really counts too. It's just like, mm -hmm. like you, you finish it and you're like, oh my God, that was hard. But it was almost like, it was like, you know, type two fun where, you know, it was like, uh, like type two hard, where it's like, you only realize how hard it was when you're done. Right. Cause you know, cause it, like it's, you know, constant, uh, variation. Yeah. There's something different about staring down the barrel of a three to four minute interval versus a 30 second. Knowing... Yeah. Which is exactly why I hate that question. You know, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. you should hate that question. <laughs> if someone says, Oh my goodness, it'd be this one. We usually go, oh, I might not coach with that. Right. Yeah, exactly. We, but we cornered you. We put you in. No, it's corner. like, as a matter of fact, I only do give my athletes one workout that they do over and over and over and over. It's like, okay. <laughs> Two by 20 by 400. <laughs> um, all right. You spoke, spoke about your writing and maybe things you'd like to go back and hide. Uh, what about as a coach? What are some of the mistakes you made early on that you've grown out of um, at some point? Uh, anything that comes out, just like things, one that things that athletes could look for and two, just like a, a little humility. Like what are some of the mistakes you made early on in your career that way? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, this is never going to go away. Like it, one of my biggest faults as a coach is that I, I make things too much about me. And it's actually one of the reasons I waited a long time to start coaching. Cause I didn't feel like I was cut out to be a coach. Like, you know, like what, you know, one of the advantages of the work I do is I get to interact with some of the world's greatest endurance coaches. So I see what it takes. And like, you know, those, you know, the people who were born to coach, I mean, they, they just, they don't sleep at night if one of their athletes is struggling. I mean, literally do not sleep at night. And like me, no, uh, like I'll, I'll lie awake at, at night worrying about my own obstacles, but not, you know, not someone else's. So that's a constant battle. Like I think self-awareness is like, you know, half of what's required to overcome that. But like, I catch myself all the time. Like, Matt, you're doing it again. Like you're uh, you know, just making it too much about my, me and not enough about the athlete. That's fair. I think that's an easy trap to fall into. Yes. Because our own love for what we do is what led us to be coaches and what we're doing. And that starts with our own love, not somebody else's. Right. And so, yes. yeah, I understand that. Do you ever find your desire to work with an athlete waning if they're not progressing? Is that what you mean by like egotistical coaching or are you not about the progress? You're about the process of working with people. No, it's just, you know, it's just a little bit more of like, you know, wanting to make an impression on the athlete I'm working with, like to like, I don't know, just like it, because like, I'm really, the thing I was born to do is write. And, and I'll be perfectly honest, like, you know, writing is not performative in the same way that, you know, acting and, and music and some other things are, but still like you want to be loved. That's why uh, you don't work as hard at writing as I have. If you don't want people to read your books and say, wow, what a great book. And so I, I do that in coaching too. I want, I want, part of me wants people to say, wow, what a great coach. And like, it doesn't work that way. Like, that's not how you become a great coach. Um, so that's what I'm talking about. Gotcha. Okay. Um, what do you think the most important attributes are to look for in a, in a good coach? And there's only two questions left after this. So what, what do you think? Like, if you're just going to check the box, like, what do you think? Like you said, self-awareness, for example, uh, maybe that's your lead, your lead, but what do you think is important? Uh, quick bullet points. Yeah. Um, you know, number one is that like commitment or devotion, uh, you know, just like, you know, exactly what I struggle with is, is like, you know, really, 
um, really, you know, that the ability and the will to invest in an athlete's success. Like, so, you know, like you want your athlete to succeed as badly as you ever wanted success for yourself. Like that, that is number one. Um, I think knowledge is way overrated. Like knowledge is great, but if you don't know it, you can look it up. Um, I think that like an understanding of process, like a, like a sort of an experimental approach to training is key. Someone, um, and also humility, which goes hand in hand with that. It's like, I think the great coaches are the, the ones who will say, I don't know the answer, but I know we can find it uh, together. Um, so hmm. that would be very high on the list of things I would look for in a coach. It's a tough thing to dissect when you don't know the coach yet. Yes, it is. That's right. You know, like, you know, referrals, you know, can be great. You know, you know, if you really trust the opinion of a runner, you know, who raves about a coach and says, you know, I love this coach and this is why. And the why um, is consistent with what I just said. You should look for in a coach. Then that's something to go on. Okay. Um, you seem to be a guy that knows a lot of people. You're throwing around a lot of names of people I'd love to have a conversation with. So this one may be tough. Um, let's narrow it down to like a handful. Who have you learned the most from? Who, who are the most influential people in the running realm that you've learned the most from? Oh, goodness. <laughs> that might be the worst question I've asked you based on your reaction. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I just don't know. I don't know because there's so because I mean, there's so many or there's zero. No, exactly right because there's so many, and, and it's also I, I don't ha I haven't done a, like a, like a super deep like I don't have a mentor, n you know, never did. So like if I did, even if I'd learned from a lot of people and one clearly stood out, head and shoulders, and also it, I, like I'm I'm old, I've been at this a while, and I, so I've gone through phases. You know, um, you know, if you'd asked me that question. 10 years ago, I might've said Tim Noakes, you know, um, but now not so much. Um, so I'm sorry. I, I failed. I can't, can't. <laughs> I don't know. You failed, but I'm going to demand an answer on the last one. Bracken and I must get an answer on this one. Okay. Okay. And this is the question. Um, your goal is to set a master's world's record in somewhere between the 5k and let's say the 50 mile, don't really care what it is. All your eggs are in that basket. Eternal wealth, happiness, prosperity depend on this goal happening. And you have to hire a coach. You absolutely have to hire one coach outside of yourself to bring you to put your trust in that coach. Who would you hire and why? Last question of the day. Yeah. I mean, that one's easy. It's, it's going to be Ben Rosario just because he was my coach, you know, like, you know, I, I was self-coached almost all the time. Um, you know, I, I hired Kevin Beck, who I used to run against in high school. Kevin used to write for Running Times. He wrote the book uh, or edited the book Running Str Run Strong. Um, so he was very briefly my coach. But then Ben, you know, and, you know, since then, I mean, we're friends now. We've co-authored a book together. I really know him and I just respect the hell out of him. You know, I wouldn't say he's the the best running coach in the world, and 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 he, to his credit, nor would he. Um, but I know what I would. I mean, he he already pulled off what I consider a miracle with me. So if I'm looking for another miracle, like I'm just gonna uh, ride the horse. I was it ride the horse I rode in on. Whatever. Dance with the date you brought. Dance with the one who brung me. Is that the marathon? <laughs> the marathon you ran on very little. 
Yes. Okay. Well, no, well, that wasn't the that wasn't the Boston. Uh, that was that was uh, that was the Chicago Marathon that I ran with an elite bib in 2017. Well, Kirk, I'm sorry to make a liar out of you, but I have a last curiosity for for oh. Matt because he does have experience from duathlon through Ironman, and I'm curious about the polarity of training if that extends in your beliefs to mixed workouts. So basically, when you talk to Ironman coaches or athletes, you get people in one of two camps. You do bricks or you work in isolation. How do you feel about that? Um, uh, I, I split the difference. Like I, I, I'm a big fan of transition runs, you know, so very short um, runs off the bike and, and doing those actually quite frequently, even after every bike uh, session is a very efficient way to level up as a triathlon runner. So it's manageable. Um, cause that, you know, those 10 minutes you run off, off the bike are not the same as t- 10 minutes of running on fresh legs. Um, so I like that, but also I am old school. I go back to the days when, when, uh, you know, a lot of the pros would do very long runs off, off very long bike rides. And I, you know, I, I see value in those as well. It's just, they're pretty darn hard, hard on the body. So those would be, you know, you would want to push those to closer to peaking and do them more selectively. All right. Um, we've had you for two hours. This feels like a damn mm-hmm. gift. Um, I, I guess then the last question, just to pay patronage to your work. Um, if people want to follow what you're doing, go buy your books, your blog, which I have not read. Now I feel like I need to hop right on that. Like where can people find all that, that informa- information? Yeah. So my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org. Um, and I guess my professional website is 8020endurance.com. Um, that's, you'll find there's a tab that says blog. Um, it's a treasure trove, Kirk. It's like, it's a, it's just so much good stuff in there. I do love treasure troves. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on. And I'm really sorry to hear about the long-term battle with COVID. I'm really, really hopeful that you get a bit of a handle on that and can return to the sport you love. I appreciate that very much. And, you know, I, I host an 80, 20 endurance podcast too. And I feel like I, I need to turn the tables on you guys at some point and have, have you, you should, I'll have to run it by my co-host Hannah though, and get yeah. her rubber stamp. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to cross Hannah. <laughs> no, you do not. Well, thanks for doing this. If people want to reach out, are you a reach out to me? I've got all the time in the world or are you a, yes, I am it, like I'm 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 more of an email guy so you can you can uh, like if you if you ask me a question on Instagram like I may find it sometime in a few years but like if if you use the contact form on my website I you will get an answer something I appreciate about you I've reached out to a number of high profile people and it's tough to get an answer and you were you're pleasantly responsive and very pleasant to interact with so thank you for that I think others could expect the same appreciate that yeah All right. Enjoy your day. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. Bye now.